Samuel, can you say, welcome to the podcast? Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to another T-Rex Talk. My name is Isaac Bodkin. This is a podcast exclusive episode and we're going to be talking about the future of the fighting handgun. We're going to talk about rifles or pistols. Yes. The This episode is more speculation and wish lists than it is actual predictions about where the technology of handguns are going. And again, it's the fighting handgun, duty handgun that we're talking about today, not necessarily pocket pistols and stuff like that, which I actually feel like there's been more development in the sort of pocket pistol concealed carry area than um, than anywhere else in the firearm industry. Uh, I'm very impressed with the SIG P365, which has managed to pack an awful lot of full-power 9mm bullets into something that used to be, well, it's the same size as old 32 caliber mouse guns from like 10 or 15 years ago. But apart from minor changes like uh, like smaller sizes, we really are in the same territory, technologically speaking, that firearms uh, handguns have been in for about 120 years. So the the semi-automatic recoil-operated locking barrel handgun has been around now for about 120 years, and there haven't been any major, major changes to that core technology. There have been some new materials, there have been some new ways of going about other things, but there hasn't been a major shakeup. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that there should be or will be a major shakeup. And in fact, what I am basing some of my speculations upon is not technology in the uh, firearm space, but in the accessory space and some different trends that we see in the way that different firearms are used, handguns and larger firearms. So let's uh, let's look at the, the first trend that I want to bring up. That is pistol optics. So obviously there have been a lot of developments in the optic space, both magnified optics and non-magnified optics. Electronics in aiming technology has come a long way in the last 20 years to the point where iron sights on fighting rifles are definitely only a backup at this point. An adoption of red dot optics on pistols is incredibly rapid. And in some senses, the manufacturer of fighting handguns has already adopted these things. More and more pistols are coming with the slides already cut for those red dot optics. And I have to say that I am hugely impressed with how far pistol optics have come. The fact that you can get a red dot optic that is so small and light that you can put it onto the slide of a recoil-operated pistol and it doesn't actually change the reliability of that gun is really impressive to me. And the fact that while it rides on that slide, going back and forth being slammed forwards and backwards by tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of rounds being fired is kind of amazing. And yet at the same time, I really wish that my optic wasn't moving around so much. It could be that I'm just not a particularly good shooter. In fact, uh, we can scientifically prove this. But when I do shoot pistols with static optics, I do better. There's a couple different ways that we can test this. One is with the ALG six-second mount, which gives you a non-reciprocating red dot on top of your Glock pistol that also adds some more mass, so it's not like a perfect test. Or something like the Maxim 9, which has an integral suppressor, but it also has a non-reciprocating optic mount, and that is really nice to shoot as well. So I think that there is some significant value in designing pistols around red dots now that we've spent a few decades designing red dots around existing pistols. The pistol designs that we're currently working with are decades 
uh, many, many, many decades old. And now that optics technology has changed and we have some ways to test and to experiment with stuff, maybe we just rethink that one a little bit. And then another one that I want to look at is... uh, Suppressor technology. Now, suppressor technology has changed a fair amount, but the main thing that has made suppressors more adopted recently is actually um, uh, financial. The main obstacle for people obtaining uh, suppressors for their firearms in the past has been the $200 tax stamp that the ATF collects because of the 1934 NFA Act. Now, as the dollar has been uh, inflated and lost a lot of its value, that $200 tax stamp has become more of an annoyance than an insurmountable obstacle. So more and more and more suppressors are being used and experimented with by regular folks. Now, the military obviously has been picking up on suppressor usage in the last uh, few decades. Uh, they, they don't have the same uh, legal obstacles that uh, us dirty civilians do, but there have been some technological advances that have spurred the adoption of some of these things on fighting rifles. And if you have experimented with suppressors at all, you know that they're far more practical and useful on rifles than they are on handguns. And there's a number of reasons for these, but one of them is that that really solid, reliable, recoil-operated barrel-locking system that nearly all semi-auto pistols have, it just doesn't lend itself to putting a whole bunch of mass on the front of the barrel. It affects the operation of the gun a lot. So you need a booster or Nielsen device or a piston or something that is going to allow the firearm to operate with the suppressor on there. And that's just kind of a pain. If handguns had fixed barrels the way that most rifles do, you would end up with a situation that is much easier for adding different types of muzzle devices, including suppressors. And in this case, I do think we're going to see some pretty significant technological advances in the field of suppressors. The adoption of suppressors has really spurred on a pretty competitive market for people who are inventing and developing those things. There's a bunch of very cool materials and manufacturing technologies that are coming and uh, software for simulating that hypersonic fluid flow that you use to figure out what is a really effective suppressor. That's come a long way as well. So I think there's going to be a lot of very cool suppressor stuff that's getting done. And so building firearms more around some of these new suppressors that could be coming or various other muzzle devices that are growing in popularity probably makes it worth looking into fixed barrel handguns again. Now, obviously, fixed barrel handguns are not a new thing. They're, they're technically a very old thing. We used to have, uh, in the past, a number of semi-auto handguns were fixed barrel and regular blowback operated. And we got away from that because recoil operated is just a superior action. And the fixed barrel didn't really uh, give you that much of an advantage when it came to accuracy in those days. But With improvements in modern ammunition and improvements in optics on the pistol and this wider adoption of suppressors and other muzzle devices, could be it's worth looking into fixed barrel stuff again. Now, I don't say that lightly because... uh, The current standard of recoil-operated locking barrel semiotic pistols that has been the standard for the last 120 years is a really good standard, and it's very hard to make your pistol operate using some different method without adding a bunch of weight or complexity or unreliability. So I'm just saying it's probably worth looking at it again. And there's another advantage that I think we could get with fixed barrels and the ability to attach all these extra accessories and stuff to our handguns. And that is a new category of weapon. 
Again, nothing's new under the sun. This isn't a super new category, but it's a category that's a little bit more valuable now, in my opinion, and that is the personal defense weapon. And I say this because, essentially, submachine guns are obsolete. There's really no reason to have a standard classic old submachine gun anymore because of advances in the carbine space. So the classicest of all of the submachine guns is, of course, the H&K MP5. But I have a 300 blackout uh, pistol, <clears throat> pistol, and it is smaller, it is lighter, it is cheaper, it is easier to get parts for, it is easier to repair than an MP5. And uh, when it is suppressed and running the subsonic ammo, it is almost as quiet as the MP5 and is shooting a bullet that has considerably more ballistic energy at slightly longer ranges. And then if I load the supersonic bullets, I get tremendously more power than 9mm out of a 10-inch barrel. So there really is no need to have those standard SMGs anymore when you can have a small carbine instead. But there are some advantages uh, in shooting pistol ammo through a 10-inch barrel on something that has a little bit more control surface and a better place to put optics. And that just needs to be really, really tiny for it to have any value over a small carbine. And that's where the personal defense weapon idea comes in. If you had a personal defense weapon that had the exact same parts as your duty handgun, I think that would be a phenomenal thing. Now, there's giant companies and corporations where that doesn't matter so much. When FN built the P90 and the FN 5.7, they wanted the ammunition to be compatible, but they didn't make mags compatible. Uh, it doesn't share any other parts. The entire um, value add of the logistics chain is ammunition only. But if you're an individual or if you're a smaller group or if you're a smaller manufacturing company, you get a significant logistical boost by trying to share as many parts as possible, which is why um, a personal defense weapon that is is an extended handgun and shares parts and mags and ammunition with your concealed carry firearm is a very interesting idea for me. And again, it's not a new idea. Obviously, there are folks in the past that have experimented with this in different guises. There's the MP7, but one of my most interesting and, and weirdest guns that I'm aware of is the VP70, something that H&K made back in the year 1970. The whole idea for the VP70 was that it would be a mass-produced, ridiculously cheap handgun that would be given to the civilian population. The VP, or Volkspistol 70, was going to be distributed amongst the West German population so that they would have something to defend themselves against the invading Soviet army uh, during the Cold War. Now, fortunately, the communists did not invade Western Germany, militarily speaking. We can talk about the creeping threat of communism a different time. But the VP-7 was supposed to be a cheap and accessible fighting handgun for a civilian population, and it had a couple of very interesting features. It did indeed have a fixed barrel, and it did indeed have a stock that could be attached to it so that you could use it as a PDW. And when the stock was attached, you actually had a selector switch that would give you three-round burst. It had a lot of the features that we're talking about, but it was... Not a very good gun. In fact, it was kind of awful in a whole bunch of different ways. The trigger, for starters, was the worst. And even though it's very impressive to me that H&K wanted to make a polymer-framed, striker-fired, double-stack, high-cap—or wait, I should say, uh, standard-capacity magazine pistol— I'm more amazed that they wanted to distribute it to civilians. H&K is currently the most anti-armed civilian gun manufacturer that I can think of. But they also had to cut a lot of corners as well. Because it was fixed barrel and it was mass-produced to be incredibly cheap, 
It ended up with a standard blowback action, and since it was chambered in 9mm and that's too much pressure, they just vented a bunch of gas out the barrel, which is kind of an elegant solution in one way because it simplifies everything, but it also wastes a huge amount of your power and gives you a significantly less powerful bullet. So I'm not saying we go back to the VP70, but it is interesting that these concepts that we're talking about have been kicked around uh, a number of different times. Now, if you do want to build yourself uh, a pistol with a fixed barrel and uh, a number of these potential advantages that we've talked about, there are folks that have experimented with this. Agent K also made the P7, which is a gas-operated pistol. It has a bunch of interesting features about it, and that gas operating system works relatively well, but the complexity involved is kind of problematic. And then there's a more recent pistol that I'm very interested in testing, and that is the Luago Alien, which, again, has some interesting parts to it that we don't necessarily see elsewhere. Now, in the past, we've seen um, really interesting ideas fail because the market wasn't ready or because the manufacturing technology for the uh, the underlying ideas wasn't ready. So the VP70 preceded the Glock to market by 12 years. People were not ready for plastic pistols, perhaps. But more importantly, the design wasn't really ready for uh, mass production. Some of the things that haven't been viable in the past because they required really finicky machining or they required really precise parts or they required something that just wasn't uh, affordable at the time, those things may have changed. And there's a number of examples where we have actually seen that happen fairly recently. One of them is uh, with the AR-15. When the AR-15 was uh, rolled out in the 60s, it was considerably more expensive than an AK-47 because the machining technology of the time uh, was more expensive than the gigantic factories just stamping out receivers uh, out of sheet metal. And to some extent, that is still true today. If you happen to own a gigantic sheet metal factory with huge stamping capacity, uh, you can still make AK-47 receivers relatively cheaply. However, the ability to mill AR-15 lowers uh, has gotten a lot easier, or rather the technology that is required to do that is far more widely available. The tools and jigs that you need to make a lot of these really precise machined firearm parts, stuff that was just too expensive to put into production 50 years ago, actually very affordable today. And in some ways, I think you get a significant advantage by more widely distributed small manufacturer than a centralized mass manufacturer. Obviously, the main reason that the Glock succeeded was because they had an incredibly simple and reliable design and because their manufacturing capability benefited significantly from the simplicity of the parts. They were able to injection mold frames at a fraction of the cost of a milled steel lower frame. Almost every part inside of the Glock is made out of stamped steel that is bent to be the correct shape that it needs to be as opposed to something that has to be milled out of steel. So you end up with a pistol that is incredibly affordable, but you also have a design that is really built around these manufacturing technologies where the action of the pistol benefits from the flexibility of that polymer lower and uh, the flexibility of all of those sheet metal parts as opposed to cast or milled metal parts. The real genius of the Glock is not not so much in the design of the firearm itself, but the design of the firearm manufacturer. It's the reason that it took the world by storm. It's the reason that it's so reliable, and it's the reason that it is so affordable. Now, when you have a company like that pushing a product like that, it can be extremely successful. And this tends to be the model that firearm manufacturers uh, often pursue. 
They would like to be the next Glock. That's why every firearm is uh, considered potentially a Glock killer. That and the fact that Glock has 80% of market share in the United States at the moment. However, one of the fascinating things that has happened fairly recently is, in many ways, Glock is no longer a product. It has become a platform. In the 80s and 90s, the success of the Glock firearm depended very much upon its manufacturing capability as a single product from a single manufacturer. But today, the success of the Glock platform really is highly dependent upon the third-party parts suppliers that exist and the number of people who are building things around and for Glock. Part of this is uh, because certain patents have expired, but also just because the third-party support for different weapon systems means a lot more. The number of AR-15 makers that exist is far more important than the size of a single AR-15 manufacturer for the adaptability of that platform. So the fourth thing that I think really needs to inform the future of the fighting handgun is a design that really leans heavily into the existence of manufacturing uh, technologies of today. So that means that perhaps 3D printed parts are actually more cost effective than machined or injection molded parts. And it could be that machined precision parts that have made complicated gas operated handguns of the past just not reliable or affordable enough. Well, it could be that their time has actually come. It could be that the ability to machine precision parts is so widely available now that the complexity of those parts is no longer as much of an obstacle as it used to be. And I also think it's time for us to consider a more distributed approach to firearm manufacture. It's interesting that in the United States, the gigantic firearm corporations uh, are no longer as important as they used to be. In fact, in many instances, they no longer exactly exist. Remington, for example, is no longer a company. It is a name. Uh, the company behind it has been bankrupt so many times, bought and sold so many times, uh, under lawsuit so often that uh, it almost isn't even really a tangible thing. Meanwhile, there are a million tiny manufacturers building AR-15s and AR-15 parts and Glock parts and Glock knockoffs that are still in business and that are still successful. And their customers are better supported because even if one of those companies goes out of business, the product that they have purchased is still going to be usable. It is still going to be extendable and it's still going to be repairable and it's still going to be useful to them in the future because of the wider support of the platform from the wider firearm community. So I also think that for now, we should consider that the future of the fighting handgun Whoever wants to build this and design this, I think should really lean into building a platform as opposed to a specific product. And that is where some of the real uh, significant advantages, I think, of the personal defense weapon comes in. If you are making something that multiple manufacturers can support, then limiting the amount of parts that they have to make is also a huge benefit. So these are the things that I have been thinking about, but this is a, an incredibly rambly episode. I actually want to turn this into a YouTube video. I want to do a bunch of tests. I want to test the Luago Alien. Um, I want to test uh, the Flux uh, braces that are on a number of pistols that we own at the shop. I want to do some more testing with the Maxim 9. Uh, I'm looking at putting a stock onto a couple of 22 pistols that I have and running those with different optics and different suppressors and... Uh, building kind of the poor man's MP7. I think it's going to be a fun, fun project. I want to do some more hands-on testing of some of these ideas that I think might be valuable, just to get a little bit more idea of how useful they are in the field. And I'm continuing to do a bunch of research on everything related to manufacturing, 
and continuing to learn weird, weird stories from the firearm industry, interesting insights into how that things operate. So when this actually turns into a YouTube video, hopefully it will be informed by a lot more information, a lot more research, and some actual hands-on experimentation that we can talk about. So it'll be very interesting to go back and look at this episode and see if my opinions or my wish list changed. Um, well, I'm sure that it will. How much it changed is probably a more interesting thing to see. But the other reason I'm turning it into a podcast, not just because it's Monday, but because I'm really curious to see what you guys are thinking. I'm reaching out to you for some input or some ideas or some speculation on what the future of the fighting handgun is. Is it actually a platform or is it a product? Is it going to be important to lean into muzzle devices and suppressors or not so much? Is the PDW concept worthwhile, or do we need to switch to a new ammunition that uh, that just lets carbines get smaller? Or do we want to just switch to uh, focusing on tiny concealed handguns because that's the most useful thing in the world that we're going into? These are all fascinating questions to ponder, and... Uh, <laughs> I hate to say there's no right answers, but there's no way of knowing what the right answer actually is until we have the benefit of hindsight, because there's always right answers. So thank you very much for listening, and uh, please subscribe to our newsletter. We now have two newsletters. We have a regular T-Rex newsletter that is uh, information and news from the company, but now we also have a political newsletter that we're rolling out every other week where we talk about stuff that is happening in the news, uh, in the political gun-related news, and stuff that we are doing as a company in the political realm. So if you're interested in that, head over to our website. Make sure you sign up for both of those things. Say, subscribe. And our email list. Alright, goodbye. Bye.